Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer, building community through storytelling and sharing the LGBT experience. My guest today is Cliff Morrison, a clinical nurse from the Deep South who arrived in San Francisco just as the AIDS epidemic was about to break out. Cliff was quickly thrust into the middle of that furor, developing the first ward ever dedicated to AIDS patients at San Francisco General Hospital in 1983. We're going to talk to Cliff about that experience and what it was like being in the middle of all of it. He's one of my unsung heroes. Cliff, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Mike, for having me. You know, when we were getting to know each other over the last couple of months after we met at the screening of Ward 5B, the film which you are involved with, it came out that we both grew up in the same area of the country, the panhandle of Florida, kind of a rural, somewhat backwards area by all accounts. Why don't you tell us about your upbringing in northern Florida? Yes, I grew up in the panhandle, actually the edge of the panhandle, little town in Swanee County uh, on the Swanee River. It's about 85, 90 miles from anywhere, really. You know, it was it, it was a very conservative place to grow up. A lot of religiosity. I, you know, my earliest memories were that it was a fairly tight-knit community. Family and church was important. Everybody worked really hard. That was pretty much what I grew up with. Well, you know, we have kind of different experiences. I hid my attraction to boys. I never had sex. I was deeply closeted. I was the only Jewish kid in the county. You, on the other hand, were more part of the fabric of your community. Tell me how that upbringing was for you. Well, it was difficult because my family was very poor and my father was an alcoholic. After I became grown, I I realized looking back on it that he also suffered from a mental illness. But, you know, as you know, growing up in the Deep South, nobody talks about mental illness because it doesn't exist in your family. So no one talked about the fact that my father was mentally ill and that he probably drank to self-medicate. So that was always kind of hanging over me. And he was certainly abusive physically and verbally. So I had to deal with that. We lived in fairly extreme poverty. I didn't realize how poor we were because when you live in an environment like that, there's always plenty to eat because we lived in a farming community. So there was always food. We never had a car. We didn't get a telephone until I was, I think, in junior high. So we you know, we lived a, a pretty isolated life. So tell me, you've privately shared with me that you ended up being the victim of, of sexual abuse. How did that happen? Well, you know, because you grew up in that part of the country, I, I think you probably have a better understanding than than many other people. In that kind of an environment, religion and family is an important part of it. But at the same time, there is this overlay of sexuality that is prevalent that's never really discussed. It always struck me that sex was taboo and nobody really talked about it, but yet at the same time, there seemed to be a lot of it that was going on and that there was a lot of homosexual activity as well. And I was exposed to it at at a fairly young age. I was willing, I didn't realize at the time that as a child, I legally couldn't give permission to have sex with someone else, but I certainly went into it willingly. I I didn't look at it as it being abusive in any way. My first sexual experiences were with people that were pretty much my age, maybe a little older and then later on a few years older. But that certainly was my first exposure to homosexual activity 
was, you know, being, you know, working in a farming community, being in the fields, being in the woods, found myself being with other males. One thing would lead to another, a little bit of exploring or talking about it or whatever. Hey, you want to look at this or hey, you want to do that? And I was sure. Sure. Why not? And then, of course, the whole thing about now we can't ever really tell anybody this because no one can ever find this out. So there was very early on a lot of guilt that was associated with it. I was very much aware of the fact that if anyone found out any of this, that myself and whoever I was involved with in this activity were certainly going to be in jeopardy in some way. I don't know any of those people anymore. I'm probably not even living there. I, I can't imagine that any of those people would have stayed there. They would have probably done what I did. As soon as they could, they got out of there. Yeah, the place I grew up in as well, it wasn't a good place to, to remain around in. Let me ask you, how old were you the first time it happened? And how many different people would you say you had experiments with? Oh, my goodness. I would say I was probably five when I remember the first time somebody, uh, you know, an older boy fondling me or whatever, you know, I wasn't upset by it. I liked it. So I was willing, but five, I don't think you can really give permission. But I also realized that there was something about it that wasn't right and that I could never tell anyone. And then it certainly continued uh, the whole time that I was growing up. You know, it kind of expanded, you know, growing up and and, and living in that environment, one person would introduce me to someone else or just in, in the course of developing relationships or whatever, you'd realize that you had something in common. And the next thing I knew, I would be in a situation where I would be alone with another boy, usually boys that were at least two to four or five years older than me. And, the, you know, and that's, that was the bulk of my relationships growing up. Did that create any trauma for you? Yes, it did. I think what it did for me as a child, it made me be a lot more secretive. I was pretty much a loner. I did experience uh, an enormous amount of guilt and fear that in some way or another that I was going to be exposed made me from a very early age. I think by the time I was 10, I was already laying out my plans of how I'm going to get away from there, go away and I would live in a big city and that I would have my own place I could do whatever I wanted to do. So that leads us to the question of how did you get away and at what age? By the time I was about 13, 12 or 13, I remember telling my mother one day, I'm not going to work in the fields anymore. And she said, well, what are you going to do? Everybody here works. And I said, I'm going to go to the hospital and I'm going to see if they will give me a job doing anything there. So I did. The administrator of the hospital was a woman that my mother had grown up with. And so she knew the circumstances of my family. So I just went into her office one day and said, I need to talk to you. And so she met with me and I explained to her what I needed to do. And she was very patient. Then afterwards, she said, well, let me take a look at this and I'll get back to you. A couple of days later, she contacted me and asked me if I would come in and interview for a position working in the housekeeping department in, in the hospital. So I started off working in the hospital, basically, you know, mopping floors, taking out trash, just the, the general things that you would do in a housekeeping department. I did that for a year or so, and then I became an orderly. All through high school, I worked as an orderly in a small community hospital and realized that healthcare was pretty much my calling. I hadn't at that point thought about nursing per se, 
but no one in my family had ever graduated from high school or gone to college. I realized as the Vietnam War was coming on that there was a need for nurses and that more and more men were going into nursing. Uh, I remember the first time that I saw a male nurse. He, I think he, he and his wife were both nurses and they lived in Gainesville, Florida, but they would come work part-time in the, in the small community hospital that I was in. And I had never seen a guy that was a nurse and that was a whole, a whole different frame of reference for me at that point. And I'm so glad that the first male nurse that I knew was heterosexual and was married and, and you know, because because it didn't even cross my mind that there would be a stereotype that male nurses would be gay. How did that get you to catapult yourself out of Florida and to San Francisco? Okay, I, um, I got a scholarship to go to nursing school in Jacksonville, and it was a partial scholarship, so I still had to work. So I worked full-time uh, in a hospital. I went to nursing school in Jacksonville. I went through um, you know, a basic RN training program that completed that in two years. By the time I completed, I was in charge of the emergency room at the University Hospital in Jacksonville, which, which was the, um, the local trauma center. A good friend that I worked with there, her husband uh, was a banker and he got transferred to Miami. And after she moved there, she called me and she said, hey, you know, there's lots of jobs in Miami and I think you'd really like it here. And they also had this new program that's starting at a state university that's just opening up, that you can get your bachelor's degree within two years. You won't have to repeat everything. They'll give you credit for already being an RN. So I moved to Miami. Well, let's see. Um, I graduated from high school in 1969. I finished nursing school in Jacksonville in 1971. And in 1972, I moved to Miami and started going to school there. And I lived in Miami until 1979 when I moved to San Francisco. And so, so you were in Miami around the time of Anita Bryant and the whole anti-gay ordinance was being voted on in South Florida, right? But that was definitely a very influencing factor for me moving to San Francisco because I was essentially being forced out because of what was going on. I realized at that point in time, although, although Miami was, you know, I mean, that was the 1970s. Miami was a pretty wide open town. There was a huge gay scene in Miami, which I enjoyed quite a bit. But by 1979, because someone that I'd known from college, a good friend, was from San Francisco, I, I had been visiting San Francisco, oh, sometimes three or four times a year, and knew that eventually I wanted to live there. So in 1979, I had the opportunity to sign up to work on a project at the University of California in San Francisco at San Francisco General. And so I went thinking that I would just do this for a year. I would just kind of, you know, see how I liked it. And the first year I, you know, I had really ambivalent feelings. I, you know, I lived in Florida all my life. I thought San Francisco was cold and not only the weather feeling cold and damp, but I felt like that there was something very artificial and cold about the whole scene. I wasn't really comfortable with the gay scene in San Francisco. And now looking back on it, I'm so glad that I wasn't because it made me kind of kind of pull back uh, a lot. I mean, I wasn't that sexually active when I first moved to San Francisco. How did you end up then working in the nursing profession in San Francisco? And tell me what happened 
as AIDS suddenly got discovered mm -hmm. and began to spread. When I first came to San Francisco through the University of California in San Francisco General, because San Francisco General is one of the teaching hospitals for the University of California in San Francisco and the School of Medicine and the Schools of Nursing. So I was working on forensic unit at San Francisco General. I did that for a couple of years and I realized I didn't really like it. But while I was there was when I first really began to hear about this thing that was happening in the community. And so I immediately got involved in the community and what was going on. Part of being any uh, licensed uh, healthcare professional, you have to have continuing education credits. So to get my continuing education credits, I attended a sexuality workshop one day at the hospital. Packed on at the end of it was this nurse who was talking about the Shanti Project in San Francisco and that they were dealing with this unknown issue in the gay community that no one else was dealing with. My interest was piqued. So I, I immediately went up to her afterwards and said, I want to get involved in this. So she gave me the information. Within a couple of weeks, I found myself going through the Shanti training program to become a volunteer with Shanti. So that was my first exposure to, to dealing with it. But right around the same time, I had a roommate and I came home one day and found him laying in the hallway of our apartment. We had a two bedroom apartment and he was laying on the carpet in, in the hallway. He was, he was almost delirious. You know, I was like, oh my goodness, you know, what's wrong? Well, I knew that Wayne, Wayne was someone who liked to experiment with drugs. When I found him like that, I thought, oh, okay, well, he's, you know, he's gotten into some drugs or something. I put him to bed and took care of him for a couple of days and saw that he wasn't really getting any better. Because he had just moved to San Francisco, he didn't have any health care insurance. So I contacted a good friend of mine at San Francisco General who said, you know, well, there's, there's this physician in the community that I think will see your friend. So I called and made an appointment and I took him in. Well, as soon as I took him into the doctor's office, within an hour, they had admitted him to a private hospital and put him in an isolation room. They stopped me from going in and said, this guy has something that we've never seen before and we can't let you be in there without wearing all this personal protective equipment. I remember my response to them was, well, you know what? I'm a nurse and we're both nurses and I've been taking care of this guy for three days. So whatever he's got, I probably have already anyway. And so I never wore, I didn't put it on then. I mean, they were all aghast and they were like, well, you know, we're, you know, we can't assume any responsibility. And I was like, I don't expect you to. So I never wore the, what we call the PPE, the, the professional pr uh, protective equipment. I used very common sense, basic knowledge about infection control and wore gloves and gowns and masks when it was appropriate. I didn't wear, I never put it on and wore it just to generally deal with people. Right around that same time that I was involved in what was going on in the community and working with the Shanti Project, then we were beginning to see patients coming into San Francisco General. And because Nursing Administration was aware of my activities and what I was doing, they asked me if I would start going to the critical care units at San Francisco General and consulting with the nurses and the doctors and the patients themselves and their friends and family because everybody was having such a difficult time dealing with all these issues. So so that's how I kind of got into it. And Cliff, before, be before you go on, I uh, didn't have a chance earlier, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I don't think the audience will necessarily know what the Shanti Project was or is and what it what it focused on. So could you just give us a little background of that so they understand how that sure. tied in with this? Sure. 
Yeah, the Shanti, the Shanti Project, which is still still around in the Bay Area, was started actually, I think, back in the 19, early 1970s. And it was a group that started to provide support to people in the community who had terminal illness and to help train volunteers to work with people who had terminal illness, particularly cancer. So when AIDS came along, the Shanti Project was well-situated in the community and had a number of volunteers who were gay and and a number of people who who were involved in the whole structure of Shanti itself were gay. So it was kind of a natural evolution for them to say, oh, okay, well, you know, obviously, you know, we'll start working with this group as well. They were really the first formal group in the community to do any work with HIV and AIDS before we even knew what it was. And so that's how I got involved with them and through that involvement was how was how I essentially became an AIDS nurse. The hospital knows you've got this training. Yes. Starting to see all these cases of what looked like really difficult, maybe fatal diseases, and they approached you and said what? At first they were like, oh, Cliff, will you come up to, uh, we had five intensive care units, critical care units at San Francisco General. And, and <clears throat> you know, and they were like, well, you know, we're getting more and more of these patients and this is really difficult. We've never seen anything like this, particularly because at you know up until that point in time, most of us had never seen had had ever seen a young person who was intubated, um, meaning that they had a tube down down their throat so that they could breathe and they could be maintained artificially by a machine, and they were fully alert, trying to communicate. They couldn't talk because they had this tube down their throat, but they were trying to communicate. We at up until that point, we were used to seeing generally older people that were in this kind of state that weren't alert to even communicate when, when they were that way. So all of a sudden here we were dealing with a lot of young men who, who were basically in, you know, in this crisis situation and they were trying to communicate with us. They weren't cooperating with the nurses and the doctors, and the nurses and the doctors weren't used to having a group of patients that were challenging them at every point. That's where I came in, and I tried to mediate and be there, and, and uh, you know, I started off really just kind of talking to the nurses and doctors about, you know, this is how you can approach them. This is how you can communicate with them. Then I would work with the patients on we're healthcare providers, and you've got to cooperate with us. So that was really kind of the beginning of how I did that. And then it kind of reached the point one day where all of the beds and all five of our ICUs were filled with people with AIDS. We realized all of a sudden that this was, that we'd reached a critical state. I was approached then by administration. They asked me if, if I thought uh, someone like myself should be made a clinical coordinator and, and would coordinate the care of all these patients around the hospital. So I became the first clinical AIDS coordinator and wrote up the job description myself, uh, got appointed to that position. So that's that was the first formal thing that we did with that. And along the way, I started documenting and developing care plans and protocols for how you deal with things. After I became the clinical AIDS coordinator, there had been a lot of discussion at various levels because all of a sudden, I was sitting on committees and infectious diseases and with the Department of Public Health and at the university. More and more of the public were beginning to hear these stories. And the media, of course, was really kind of fanning the sensationalistic aspects of it. So there was a very open discussion about isolation, creating a special 
unit or even a hospital or or a place where people with this strange disease could be segregated and sent to so that it wouldn't endanger other people. I didn't pay a lot of attention to that in the beginning, but I was like, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. I'm, you know, that's, that's not what I'm about at all. But as time went on and I began to see how big that this was probably going to become, I began to think, wow, you know, it would be really good if we had, if we created a space, a unit or a ward that would be dedicated to the care of people with this so that we could develop the expertise. We could have a volunteer staff. It it would be all professional registered nurses that with Shanti counselors there to support not only the patients, but also the staff. And we would be able to develop the expertise, would be able to create procedures and a standard of care and do it all for the right reasons. And so I was able to get that across to the Department of Public Health and the hospital administration, and they gave me permission to move forward with it. Diane Feinstein was the mayor of San Francisco at the time, and the director of public health was Dr. Mervyn Silverman. I was working very closely with Dr. Silverman. He asked me if I would go with him to meet with uh, Mayor Feinstein. We went to her office and we sat down. She said, it just so happens that we have several million dollars surplus in the budget this year. If you will promise me that you will spend this money appropriately, I will give you some of this surplus and you do what you need to do. Just make sure that you do it right. As I look back on that, you know, that, that was one of the more wonderful moments of my career. And I've always been able to say that was the first time that I'd actually seen a politician show true leadership. Do you want to focus on for a moment the fact that, if I recall correctly, almost everybody you were close to was dying? Had this started to happen already? Yes, it was. My roommate was, you know, recovered and went on to be healthy for a couple of more years. But then by the time the testing came along, we knew that he was positive. And then he started having what we call the opportunistic infection. So we knew that he had AIDS. He lived for several more years, but I think he died in 1990 or something like that. But I was already seeing people around me, people that I was working with at the hospital and, uh, you know, friends that I knew in the community. It It was becoming pretty devastating. But for me, going through that particular period, I felt that I was getting the support that I needed because I was working with all these different groups we were all supporting each other. At the same time, I was really active in my parish, Most Holy Redeemer Parish. The church is actually located in the heart of the Castro. At the time, it was for years was known as the Pink Church in the Castro. So I was involved in a lot of activities there. And we had this wonderful priest who said to me one day, how can we reach out to this community? We're right in the middle of the Castro and and we want to be able to bring these people in, make them part of our community. And I pointed out to him, I said, of course, Father, do you realize that probably half of these men are Catholic from all different parts of the country? They're not active in the church because they don't feel welcome. So we set up an aid support group at the church. Archbishop Quinn, Bishop of San Francisco, got involved as well. I became kind of his informal consultant on issues related to HIV and AIDS. So we had all of this spiritual support, not only from the Catholic Archdiocese, but also from other liberal religious groups and churches in the community as well. So it's, I, kind of, it's kind of incredible, isn't it, that it is. the, the parish of the Catholic Church, which was so conservative at the time, 
would stand up and do what churches are supposed to do and being mm-hmm. Christian. Yes, the irony of that was so profound. I, you know, I I remember even at the time thinking, wow, this is amazing. This is what it's all about. This is what makes all this real. So many things in my life and, and in my professional career crystallized around this and made me feel really good about the work that I was doing and about the kind of person that I had become as an adult and and feeling really good about my spirituality, my religion, and what my religion was doing to support me and the community as well. Wonderful. So what happened next? Next, they gave me the resources and I started recruiting nurses. I started drawing up all the plans. I was given this empty unit and said, okay, you're going to have 12 or 13 beds here, and this is yours. You do with it what you want. So I went ahead and recruited the all RN staff and started developing policies and procedures, trying to set up uh, treatment protocols and working very closely with the infectious disease specialists, the oncologists, people from the university and from the Department of Public Health. So we had all of these people weekly we were meeting. And then when I wasn't meeting with them, I would be in the hospital. Every day, I would go and get wheelchairs and take the ambulatory people with AIDS up to this empty unit, and we would all sit around in a circle, and I would talk to them about, what do you see? How would you envision this unit being? And they would tell me what they wanted, what they thought that we should be doing, and I tried as much as I could to incorporate that into the planning. Then we opened. It was an immediate success. We were off and running. I mean, by that time, the cases were just exploding. And we realized almost immediately that 5B wasn't big enough, but it did take, oh, let's see, we opened 5B in July of uh, 1983. We moved into 5A, which was the expanded age unit in, I think, May of 1986. So we had about three years on this small unit. I stayed there and opened the unit. Now, my role had changed by that point in time. Uh, There had been a lot of changes within the organization of the hospital itself. In addition to being the clinical AIDS coordinator, I became the director of medical nursing. So I was responsible not only for the AIDS unit, but for four other medical units at the hospital. So I was running a whole division of the hospital as well. You know, you said it opened with 12 or 13 beds, but given the way AIDS exploded. I can't imagine that the number of beds didn't grow dramatically. How did it oh, it did. end up? Yeah, well, by the time we moved to 5A, 5A had the capacity for up to 30. But what we started doing almost immediately with 5B, because it only had the limited number of beds, was we put patients primarily on one of the other medical floors. So that floor in particular, would take most of the overflow patients from 5B. But if there were too many of them, we'd put them on the other medical units as well. And then part of my responsibility was to ensure, because those were my units as well, that we were training the staff on those units. This is how you provide the care to those patients. You've avoided any discussion of the controversy around this. So I'm going to kind of abbreviate uh, just in the interest of time, and have you let me know if I'm on target or not, and correct me sure. where I'm wrong. But for our audience's sake, at the time when you started doing this, the fear around the AIDS was so pronounced, and the belief it might be contagious through touch, 
or through yeah. his breathing, that people didn't want to go near AIDS patients, and if they did, they would only do so wearing full head-to-toe hazmat suits. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. And the other thing was patients were being left, in some cases, untended. Uh, it was a really inhumane way to essentially die because every patient in the ward was likely to, to not survive that long. So you and your peers made an explicit decision about how you're going to do things differently that was controversial and potentially risky. Do you want to share that with us? Yes. Well, more and more information was coming out about what became known as AIDS. So there were stories in the media. I mean, you know, every night on the news, there would be another story and every day in the newspaper. So along with this was this hysteria that was growing. And even in San Francisco, even then, probably the most liberal city in the United States, there was still a lot of hysteria and a lot of misinformation. Immediately, people didn't want to didn't want to deal with gay people in particular because the the association very early on was that AIDS was a gay disease, and so you know one of the things that I used to have to say to everyone was diseases don't really have that kind of designation. It's it's not a particular person or a kind of person that's going to get the disease. It just so happens that for whatever reason at this point in time. This disease is in just gay people, but it's not going to stay that way. But because of that misinformation and homophobia and and just the general fear, you know, we had staff and other parts of the hospital that that didn't want to care for these patients and were basically refusing to. So it started creating a lot of problems. And I found myself in the center of controversy and was eventually taken to court where a group of nurses in the hospital from the medical division that I was responsible for were suing me, the hospital, and the Department of Public Health, essentially saying that we were putting them at risk by not letting them care for these patients the way that they wanted to, meaning that, first of all, they wanted to be able to refuse care, and if they had to provide care, then they wanted to be covered head to foot in these hazmat suits. Yeah, what you did, and I'm really quoting this from a documentary that we'll be discussing uh, later on and in our second interview, what you decided to do, if I'm not mistaken, was to wear no protective clothing, to treat your patients like you would any other, to allow touch and mm-hmm. uh, shared space with, in terms of breathing, to allow them to bring in families of choice, not just their blood relatives, to allow their lovers and partners to come in and if, if necessary, climb in bed with them, to bring in their pets, basically to provide a humane place for their end of life. Is, is that a fair description? Yes, yes, it is. That's a very fair description. And it, it was a very holistic approach to care. It was certainly something that had not been done before. And, you know, a, a lot of what we actually developed and implemented is now kind of standard practice in, in, a, in a lot of hospitals because we were able to take advantage of the fact that, that we, we had these resources. We were in a specialized area where we could develop specific expertise and we could develop uh, procedures and a standard of care that hadn't been developed before. We were able to work with with doctors and nurses and infectious disease specialists and public health analysts and experts so that we could disseminate this information. So, so as that happened, then more and more people started coming. 
I reached a point within just a year or so after opening 5B where I was spending almost all of my time showing people around. People were coming at first from all over the country, but then from all around the world. They wanted to see what we were doing because the word got out very quickly that we were dealing with this and we were coping with it. And so everybody else wanted to learn from us. That was extremely gratifying, but at the same time, it did create a lot of tension. It created tension in the community and within the hospital itself because some people felt that all of a sudden we were getting all of this attention and why were we getting this attention? Yeah, this, this whole story is told in loving and, and amazing detail in the documentary 5B, which Cliff is a central part of and which we'll talk about later as well. Let me ask you, though, when this all began and the opportunity and the need to make a decision about taking on the responsibility happened, weren't you afraid? Um, you know, I've been asked that a lot, Mike, and when I look back on it, I always felt that I knew enough about what I was dealing with that I personally was not afraid. I did have some anxiety about different aspects of it, and I did use some of the protective um, equipment, but I tried to use common sense with it. Certainly when I was dealing with body fluids or, or if someone had a productive cough or whatever, I would wear a mask. But for just generally being with people and just providing the, the day-to-day care of patients, I didn't wear anything other than my uniform. I would put on gloves when I felt that it was appropriate to, particularly if I was dealing with body fluids or excrement or blood or whatever. But I knew enough for myself, and because I was working with all of these infectious disease experts, we felt fairly confident early on that AIDS wasn't casually transmitted. We figured out very quickly that it was what we called a blood-borne illness, that it was some sort of virus, and that it was probably transmitted primarily through sexual contact. So by knowing all of those things, I was able at that point for myself to say, okay, these are the parameters that I can operate within, and I can share this information with this volunteer staff, and they can make the decision for themselves whether or not they want to work with this. If they don't, then they're not going to work here. And so that's that's how we developed that, and that's why we started that whole approach to having a volunteer nursing staff that wanted to be there. So now you find yourself in 1986. You've, mm-hmm. just spent, you've just spent three years of your life, during which time people close to you, among your friends and your hospital staff and the patients you're dealing with every day, are disappearing right and left. Yes. And the stress and the pressure of all that responsibility and all that tragedy must have had some impact on you. What was it like for you in 1986 when you were getting ready to leave the ward? For me, it was overwhelming, and it was very stressful. I was alone. I didn't have a relationship. didn't have time to have a relationship. I spent most of my time working. I began to realize around the time that the hearings were going on with the nurses that, that didn't want to provide care to people with AIDS, I realized that I was burning out not from working with people with AIDS, but I was burning out on dealing with the politics and the bureaucracy all of that external stuff that was just bombarding me constantly. So I felt like that it was time for me to make a move. So the next thing I did was the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation 
had uh, just appropriated funding for the AIDS Health Services Program, which was the first demonstration program or project in the country to set up models of care based on the San Francisco model in 11 or 12 cities around the United States. And Dr. Merv Silverman, who by that time was no longer the director of public health, was the the director of that. And he asked me to come on as his deputy director responsible for the operations of that project. So for the next seven years, that's what I did. I worked with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at the University of California in San Francisco and spent a lot of time traveling all around the United States, primarily to those 12 cities, but also going to other cities and then started going internationally as well. I spent quite a bit of time in Australia and in Europe. Well, you know, this was a extremely intense and tremendous kind of mitzvah that you performed for our community, even if you weren't aware of it at the time. And obviously, we're all very thankful for that. What I want to do, we're going to draw this session to a close now and save for the next time how you dealt with the trauma and the pain that came from facing up to all the loss you'd experienced, what you did for the next 20 or so years, and then how this documentary 5B, based on the history of Ward 5B, came into being and how you got involved with it and what you're doing with it, traveling all over the U.S. and all over the world, kind of promoting this story now. So uh, I want to thank you for your time today, uh, Cliff, and we look forward to the next episode. Thank you. This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, and Caleb Holland. For more stories, go to bammer.co.